So I have four nieces and nephews, and I was talking to my sister about IXL. And IXL Learning is this fun online program for kids, and it covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. My sister and my nephew love it. The way it works is it's powered by AI, so IXL gives the right help to each kid. And IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Maybe you've been looking into private tutoring, but it's out of the budget, or this is a big school year for your kiddo. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And all of these listeners can get an exclusive. 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash ologies. So visit IXL.com slash ologies to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Oh, hey. It's that lady that tries to learn macrame and gives up after like four strings. Allie Ward, back with another episode of Ologies. So y'all, this week was supposed to be Vexillology. Vexillology. Oh, I'll get it by next week, which is all about flags. And I am just hip deep in flags right now. I'm editing and researching and writing this episode. And I just wanted one more week with it because it turns out it's a very complex issue with a lot of history and a lot of context. And also, I'm going to say up top, happy 50th anniversary to my parents. They're celebrating it on August 31st. And so I'm taking a chill week. I'm going to finish flags. It'll be up on Labor Day in America, Monday night of next week. And in the meantime, I'm giving you an encore presentation about dinosaurs. This is from the early days. So you guys, if you haven't listened to this dinosaur episode, it's one of my favorites. Listen to it while I go celebrate my parents' 50th anniversary. Very exciting. If you're like, how did they make it to 50 years? Hit the matrimoniology episode. We talk about it a little in that one. But anyway, dinosaurs, we're going to get into it. So I recorded this as one of the very, very first Ologies episodes I ever did, ever recorded. This is before we even had a Patreon, before we even had patron questions. I just took a mishmash of questions from people I knew and on Twitter, I think. There is a cameo in studio from editor Stephen Ray Morris, who is a big Dino fan. You know this from his See Jurassic Right podcast. This remains one of my favorite factoid episodes ever. So there are some facts in here that blew my mind. They still blow my mind. And if you haven't listened to it, you get kind of a look back at perhaps the fossil record of ologies. When I was first starting the podcast, I was editing it all myself on GarageBand, but I wanted to serve this one up to you because right now is field season. There are paleontologists out there in the world what's up, Montana, digging up fossils. So I wanted to re-deliver this one in case you haven't heard it or revisit it if you have. And this is before I started calling myself, I think your dad. This is before I had a secret at the end of the episodes. So enjoy this antique 
episode of Ologies while I go eat Chinese food with my parents and hug them a lot. And I will be back next Monday night with the Vexillology All About Flags. It is a doozy of an episode and you guys are going to love it. So enjoy. Okay, then now on to the old intro. All right. Okay, here we go. So I'm going to be super, super honest with you. And this pains me to say because it's kind of a point of shame for me as a like science enthusiast, but I don't really give a fuck about dinosaurs. At least I, I didn't for a long time. Flies, turtles, birds' nests, plants. I'm down with all of these because in my brain, I'm like, we share the planet with them. I can look at them. I can watch how they grow and look at what they eat, how they get it on. Dinosaurs were always the wing of the museum that I was like, eh. I don't know. I'm going to go to the food court and eat a soft pretzel, but enjoy. So don't judge me because I know people love dinosaurs. People get crazy. And I read Jurassic Park in high school. I loved it. I was so into it that I was working at a stationery shop and I couldn't put it down so much so that on my watch, two ceramic bunnies were stolen and I was almost fired. So whenever I think about Michael Crichton, I say to him, hey, dude, nice work. Your book was so good. It distracted me from someone putting two football-sized porcelain bunnies down their pants or under their shirt or something. Oh, there it is. But what I loved about Jurassic Park was the dinosaur behavior. But I wasn't really that stoked about fossilized bones. I just didn't connect with it until last year I went to this party that was kind of like a science salon. And this week's guest stood up and he gave an informal talk about pterosaur wings. And suddenly I thought, okay, I think I get it. Because I'd never really thought about dinosaurs in motion like that. Also, side note for the truly self-congratulatory, you know that pterosaurs, the flying things that are like Terry on Pee-wee's Playhouse, are not actually dinosaurs. They're flying reptiles. I learned that this year too. But paleontology actually isn't even the study of dinosaurs. It comes from paleo, which means old, and onto, meaning being. So it's the study of just old beings. So this guest sparked my interest in dinosaurs in a way that I never had before because the way he talks about them and how they move really puts life to them. So he's a paleontologist and a research associate in the Dinosaur Institute at the LA County Museum of Natural History. And he's also an assistant professor of anatomy at USC's Keck School of Medicine. So he has two jobs. One of them involves uh, people who are no longer alive. And I know it's irrational and like not super death positive, but I'm a little bit creeped out by cadavers. I'm just, I'm too sad about people dying. I want to hug them. I also want to run far away trying to get over it. But our guest is hella chill about it. He spends part of the day cutting up cadavers, part of it being paleontologist. Please enjoy Michael Habib. Okay, so what is his deal? This is my deal. Well, you're right, actually. I did cut up a cadaver this morning. Did you? Yes, actually a few of them. Oh, uh, God. So that's, that's how my mornings often start. We had 188 medical students in a room with 35 dead people. Oh, my God. So you get a good cup of coffee in the morning, you sit down, and you take a part of human beings. So that's, uh, that's, my, that's my deal for about half the time. The other half of the time, I go and play with dinosaurs. There is a wrong way to take apart a cadaver, isn't there? There are a lot of wrong yeah. ways, actually. There are um, there are more wrong ways than correct ways, as it turns out. So, now you 
study movement of animals. And that's kind of how you got into paleontology. What is, is paleontology only about fossils or is it just about living things of that era? So paleontology, it doesn't necessarily have to be about fossils, but it does, historically it kind of was. It was considered to be the study of fossils, essentially, although it more literally is just the study of life in the past. And you mostly do that through, through fossils. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm one of those paleontologists who does play of fossils. Before we go much further, let's define super quick what a fossil actually is. I didn't know this until just now. Fossils are any trace or remains like a cast or an impression or a substitution with rock or even the thing itself of something that was once alive. They have to be at least 10,000 years old to be considered a fossil. I don't know what they're called if they're younger than that, to be honest. And the word fossil comes from the Latin for obtained by digging, which is like kind of adorable. I just picture people digging around being like, I obtained this by digging. It's a fossil. Speaking of old things, Michael didn't decide he wanted to be a paleontologist until later in life. I, I declared at age four that I wanted to be a paleontologist. Yeah, okay, just kidding. That's an early proclamation. I, you know, I, I like getting in early. Um, that gives me time to procrastinate. <laughs> so you waited from the age of four until what? 18 to enroll in college. That's a long, that's a lot of stalling. I, it really was. It really yeah. was. There were, there were all kinds of things that I, that, that I you know, wasted time doing in the interim, uh, such as growth and development. Right. It's very strange. Learning to use a fork. Using, learning to use a fork. Right. Yeah. Well, what happened at four? Like when that declaration went down, when you were like, mom, dad, sit down, I'm going to be a paleontologist. Like where were you in a museum? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. We were in the uh, Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. You know what I told my parents I wanted to be when I was three? And you, what do you want to be when you get big? Um, a porky pig. A porky pig, Allison Ward. Porky pig, side note, was a cartoon character who wore an open blazer with no shirt. He lacked pants. There are probably museums for that. You never know. Yeah. It's just called restaurants, I guess. <laughs> so what was, your, what was your path like when you actually got into the study of it? How much education does it take to be a paleontologist? Well, you know, it, the answer is it varies because uh, it depends on really what you're doing in paleontology, what kind of paleontologist you want to be. In Michael's case, from the time he set out to be a paleontologist, he finished kindergarten, grammar school, and then middle school, then high school, got an undergrad and master's degree in biology, then another five years to get a PhD in functional anatomy. And then off to join the quote unquote real world, uh, which if you're a paleontologist who takes apart dead people for a living (laughs) at a medical school is uh, not an accurate term. I I don't know what the real world is. I've never played in it. I've seen it through windows. It looks scary. I've decided to avoid it for, for the time being. So you've never walked into an office every day in a tie? I don't think I've ever walked into an office in a tie. Right. Yeah. I, I'm still stuck on the fact that like you spent your morning taking apart dead people. Like I know that we're here to talk about paleontology, but from the anatomy perspective, like when did you go down the path of teaching anatomy? What is it like for you in terms of like confronting mortality? Because I mean, paleo, you're dealing with ancient things. So do you, do you ever have any weird existential crises about like death and impermanence or anything? <laughs> uh, I think I got most of those out of the way when I was young. I was a precocious youngster. And by that, I meant, uh, I, you know, I questioned the, uh, I, I had a lot of questions about mortality at a uncomfortable age. And my uncomfortable, it was uncomfortable for my parents. <laughs> you know, if you, if you want to be really good at vertebrate anatomy, it, the model system is basically humans. 
it's like you know more about your car if it sucks because you have to fix it more. Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah, like we basically... tinker in the human body so much to fix it that it's like, well, yeah. Had those implants redone a few times. <laughs> we see some really interesting prostheses actually in the lab. But. Oh, do you? I bet in L.A. I bet L.A. cadavers are like pretty tight. I bet they're I bet they still look pretty sharp. I'm so sorry. The conversation accidentally went from automotive analogies back to the generous and probably very attractive people who have donated their bodies to science and the curious things Michael sees with body donors. The the type of sort of implant that I saw most often? Yes. Penis implants. No. Yeah. Where? More in L.A.? It's about even between Baltimore and L.A. You are kidding me. No. I honestly, I did not know that that was a thing. Yeah, we had one, we had one donor with one of the old models uh, that was pumpable. Whoa, no. Yeah, usually they're just silicon implants. But any case, uh, so yeah, so we've seen lots of, we've seen a lot of, of penis implants in, in, the, in the lab. But this, this deep knowledge of anatomy informs mm-hmm. your work as a paleontologist a lot. You tend to study a lot of like wing movements of pterosaurs, which are not dinosaurs, technically. Uh, that's true. That's true. So, yeah, so it's weird. So the guy who who makes doctors uh, in the morning uh, studies pterosaur wings in the afternoon. Go figure. I've been called a physicist in denial um, <laughs> by actually Caltech physicists, which I consider to be a compliment, particularly yeah. from that crowd. That's some complimentary shade. Yeah, I'll, exactly. Exactly. I'll take that. I'm particularly interested in in how that gives you motion, how animals move around um, by taking is what is really a pretty limited number of different kinds of materials to work with and and making them do amazing things. We have enough trouble making high-performance aircraft, good sailplanes and everything that can go hundreds of miles, you know, with fiberglass and, and yeah. carbon fiber and, and all kinds of metals at our disposal. Mm-hmm. And animals only have a handful of materials, really, to work with. Uh, yeah, clawful, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got, I mean, for hard tissues, you basically got your bone, cartilage is reasonably, can be reasonably stiff, uh, enamel, you know handful of other things and then a bunch of soft stuff that's basically density of water and it gives you some really really high performance stuff. I mean some of the animals I work on this some of these pterosaurs were, you know, had wingspans ten and a half meters. It's about thirty five feet wingtip to wingtip. Thirty five feet. Yeah. These things these things could kick ass and take names. These are these are powerful flying ground launching badasses and they're just doing it all with the basics of vertebrate anatomy. Do you have to study aeronautics as well as physiology to try to determine how that would give a pterosaur the ability to fly? So I, I, I do have a joint background in fluid dynamics. Which is the study of how fluids move. Just five minutes ago, I learned that fluids are not just liquids. Fluids are anything that has no fixed shape and yields to external pressure, which totally changes the meaning of bodily fluids for me. They could be a liquid or a gas. Let's change the subject. Do paleontologists love puzzles? As someone who has to put bone fragments back together, do you like puzzles or do you hate them? I love puzzles. A lot of paleontologists love puzzles. Okay. Um, I'm not sure they all do. I think for some paleontologists, it probably feels like taking your work home with you. Right. You know, you get home and I don't have any kids, but I can imagine some that do. You know, they, they you know, come home and their kids are like, hey, do you want to build this puzzle with me? Like, oh, God. What amount of time do you spend in the field? As a paleontologist, and how much of that is back in a lab or looking at spreadsheets or measuring uh, fossil densities and stuff? So in terms of the amount of time, like how much of the year I'm in the field, it's a, uh, a good chunk of the summer. But that's uh, that's usually when I do all my field work. So basically July and August, a good bit of it, I'll be in the field, um, mostly in New Mexico. Was that a titanosaur? That's the titanosaur project, yeah. 
Can you can you reveal what you're working on with that? Sure, sure. Obviously, you expedite basically whatever you find. It's not like you went out there going, we're going to find a titanosaur. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we kind of went out there going, I really kind of hope we don't find a titanosaur. Because, really? Well, I mean, not not we were being right. glib about it, which is what makes it funny. But like there was a part of us that was like, I really hope we don't find things super huge because then we're going to feel you know, compelled to excavate it and it's going to take forever. <laughs> oh, no. And of course, what we found was two individuals of the group that includes the largest land animals of all time. Oh, my God. In fact, one of our, one of our specimens may be the largest dinosaur from North America. That's huge. Maybe. Literally. Yeah. So it's just, I mean, these, you know, these are animals that a mid-sized titanosaur is like 30 tons plus. Oh my God. And a big one's like 60 tons plus. How many feet? The big guys, you're looking at 100 feet-ish. Wow. How many times bigger than an elephant are these guys? Big, okay. a big bull African elephant, mm-hmm. uh, which would be the largest living land animal. Mm-hmm. I think the record is like 6.2 tons or something oh, like that. Really? But average is more like five and change. Okay. So if a big titanosaur is regularly hitting 60, that's 12 what? times. So these titanosaurs are like if 12 elephants stacked under one giant overcoat and pretended to be a person. That's so huge. I'm, so. This is so exciting. I'm sweating. This is so wait, what happened when you were in the field and someone's like, oh, we got a bone over here. Like what what is that moment like? Uh, well, it depends on what the bone is. And in the case of the Titanosaur project, you know, you see some bone going to the hill. And our first thought was, oh, that looks really exciting. We see some interesting morphology and we can tell it, it's what we call pneumatizes. We can tell it had was it, an animal had all these air sacs in it. And we're thinking, oh, wow, that's cool. That could be like a big predatory dinosaur because they have a lot of, they had a lot of air sacs in their bones too. And we started excavating around it. And we're like, this doesn't really look like it would what could this be? You think it's, because this is a pretty big element as you're going to the hill and you're thinking that it's like a relatively big part of a small animal. Uh-huh. And then at some point your brain switches and you realize you're, you're doing the small part of an enormous animal. Oh my God. And there was that moment where there actually was a particular rod of bone that, that we started to see as we started to work around it with our tools that we realized meant that this was a, a, a vertebra from the neck, a neck bone. <gasps> I love this part so much. And I literally just looked at it and went, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> and, and of course, the, one of the poor volunteers there was like, what? What, did I break something? I'm like, no, no, this just went from, this went from a one-season project to an eight-season project. And they're like, why? I'm like, well, if this is articulated. In paleontology terms, articulated means found all in the same place. Just a bunch of bones, kicking it together in order, having a bone party under some dirt. If there's more of it, I mean, I was, and at this point, I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe it'll just be the one one element. It wasn't, of course. Oh my god! Um, then you know, we've got we've got a you know 40 ton plus animal on the hillside. Um, and you start then you start looking at the hillside. And you go, actually, I think it might kind of just be the hillside. Oh my like, god! I the hillside is just a mountain. It's just like it's just kind of it's just yeah, it's just kind of sediment loosely sitting on top of a dinosaur. Who gets to name it? Well, that depends. So. We don't know whether or not we will be naming it because we don't know if it's a new species yet or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a t- type of titanosaur from North America that is named, just one, which is interesting because the rest of the world, there's a ton of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're, like, they're like one of the hot groups of dinosaurs to work on these days. Like we went from not knowing much about them 20 years ago to suddenly this has been this explosion. So sauropods are those really long-necked, kind of round-bellied, plant-munching cuties. Apparently, 20 years ago, we didn't know much about them because our equipment for scanning um, and for transport uh, sucked. There's better equipment and tech these days to work with things this big. Mm-hmm. You know, 
half a century ago, someone finds a Titanosaur coming out of a hillside. It's like, well, that's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on, you know. Do we um, just have better vehicles now? What, what's we got changed? good vehicles. It's it's more commonplace to be able to use a helicopter. I mean, obviously, half a century ago, people could use a right. helicopter, but it was just they were not something that was regularly available mm-hmm. to well, the bud- kind of budgets that we work at right. um, to lift heavy jackets. P.S. When he says heavy jackets, he does not mean woolen coats. A jacket is that big plaster lump they smooth around excavated fossils to protect it and support it when they're storing it or delivering it. Frankly, it looks like a very fun rainy day craft project. And if you Google dinosaur jackets, I dare you, I dare you not to go down a rabbit hole looking at children's hoodies and wondering if you can fit into the largest size offered. Even if you don't get to name the species, you get to actually be like, this one's Gary or whatever, Oh, right? sure. So, the, yeah. So, the, you can get nicknames. So, yeah. So, the naming process. So, if this ends up being a new species, we will give a new technical name in a publication, and I'll be myself and my colleagues and we'll name it. But in terms of nicknames, in terms of nicknames, uh, those kind of just happen organically. Okay. Uh, and our two titanosaurs actually have nicknames. Oh, what are uh, they? They are Daisy and Duke. Aw, look at that. And uh, it's usually the students that end up naming these things. Where do they come uh, so. up with Daisy and Dukes? It's not, it has nothing to do with jean shorts, does it? Like Daisy Dukes? Daisy Dukes, for those unfamiliar, are a type of micro pant fashioned from truncated denim trousers. They are beneficial in warm climates. I, I actually don't know. Okay. I'm assuming that that was the joke, but I, I went back, I went out on a, on a scouting trip to check some some map info and came back to, to the quarry and discovered that my two undergraduate students had named them Daisy and Duke. And apparently there had been some multi-hour conversation in which this had occurred. To this day, I don't know exactly what went down. I, it's, I don't know what they came up with. I decided that if I asked, I might receive information I didn't want. And so it was better just to let it go. That's wise. The idea that there is a titanosaur in a hillside named after jorts is... Thrilling to me. So when might Daisy and Duke make their museum debut? Please put shorts on them. There's only so much exhibit space. Here's the deal with museums. It's actually like the shoe department at JCPenney. What you see on the floor is a representative fraction of what they got in the back. So you may see a cool dinosaur or like a weird old knife or a clay jug, but the museum has literally millions of specimens on site archived for research. The LA County Natural History Museum, for example, has 35 million artifacts and storage. But if you did get to name it, genus and species, any idea where you would start? There's weird rules about names and stuff. And because we might actually be giving it the name, I can't right, say it Right, you can't air. say it. Um, but we have a potential name in mind for what one of the two specimens in particular is probably a new species. So yeah, I squealed. What I can say is it's a cool name Okay. that came out of conversations in part with the Native peoples who live in the area. That's awesome. I don't mean the uh, abrasive white men. I mean actual right. Native <laughs> people. We're, and we were in Four Quarters, so we're near, we get a little bit of, e- of everything. Oh, all right. So it is, the, the dig site is near Four Corners? It is. It is. Ooh. A species name, we don't have anything necessarily in mind, although I suspect what my proposal would be is that we name it after the donor. Mm-hmm. That funds the expedition because oh. it is a privately funded expedition. That's so baller, though. To fund a dinosaur dig, if I were Jay-Z, I'd be like, screw a yacht. I'm going to fund a dinosaur dig. If I had, like, Beyonce money, I'd be mm-hmm. like, let's go dig up some bones. Well, you, you know, the funny thing is, too, you don't need Beyonce money in order to do it. Really? How yeah. much money does it cost to dig up a dinosaur? This is the most fun game I've ever played. Right, let's, let's have fun with this. How long? How much do you think a field season for us costs? 
Oh, gosh. Well, it depends on if you have interns, if you have to pay them or if you just have to buy them like, you know, a bottled water. We have a combination of paid employees from the museum as well as volunteers. Okay. Let's just but let's just look at just the field season. Let's assume that salaries for the for the museum employees is just part of their yearly okay. work and everything. So just the additional money for the supplies, the trucks, oh, to God. get people out there, to feed them, keep them safe, make the jackets. Pay attention for some huge revelations. Get transport the specimens. I would say eight hundred thousand dollars, four million dollars, a billion dollars. <laughs> Less than ten thousand a year. You're kidding me. No. Are you kidding me? So uh, you can't, you could buy a Toyota Camry used or a dinosaur expedition? That's right. What kind of a world is this? <laughs> why haven't, why haven't we all done this? I, good question. <sighs> I'm there getting you go. shrill. I'm just so, I'm so excited. I, I've yet to run into anyone who underestimates the cost. They always yeah. overestimate. Oh, yeah. It's there, you know, there's just this thought that, that you know, there must be pouring billions of dollars yes. in the paleontology. No, no, <gasps> no, 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 no. There's no way that anyone could think it was less than $10,000. No. That's amazing. No, it can, it, can, it can obviously climb in from that, but you're still talking about tens of thousands of dollars, not hundreds of no. thousands or millions. So less than a wedding these days. People, yeah. People drop some cash on their weddings. They drop some cash on their weddings. My parents said they went to two weddings last year. They were each cost over $65,000. Are you serious? You could yeah. buy a goddamn dinosaur vertebrae for that. The whole dinosaur, maybe. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's, that's six and a half field seasons. The average American wedding costs around $30,000. And the average amount it costs to be a guest in someone's wedding, like getting there, buying nylons with no runs in them, presents, is $888. Everyone, start eloping so we can reallocate that money to digging up more cool dead stuff. So do you have a favorite dinosaur? Do I have a favorite dinosaur? Yes, I have a couple of favorite dinosaurs, okay. depending on what kind of favoritism Right. One has in mind. The one that like really has a place in your heart. Like, you know which one it is. There's one that you really like the most. Sure. So growing up, so the one that makes me think, ah, childhood, is this thing Deinonychus. Okay. Which is very similar to Velociraptor of Jurassic Park fame. Mm -hmm. uh, incidentally, the real Velociraptor was about coyote-sized and feathered, <gasps> not giant and scaly. Dino enthusiasts love to note that the velociraptors in Jurassic Park were not historically accurate. It's true. Deinonychus, which means terrible koala, was much closer to what was portrayed as a velociraptor. And I thought this was just someone sleeping on the job. But the confusion is said to have originated from Deinonychus originally being labeled as a subspecies of velociraptors. Either way, these things should have had feathers. So imagine a giant clawed bird wanting to murder you. That's upsetting. It's not as upsetting to some people, though, as a movie getting facts wrong. Uh, some of them are. I've seen some people get really upset about it. I yeah. just, I don't get that upset about it. But yeah, I mean, they're, it's essentially, they're essentially fantasy creatures. But Deinonychus was particularly interest, was particularly important historically because it was one of the first uh, dinosaurs that was specifically used in some of the, what was, uh, some of the original hypotheses about the origins of birds, and specifically being dinosaurs. So. Really? By the way, all birds are technically dinosaurs. And that may be a thing that you've accepted and you've processed in your heart or mind, but it still weirds me out. It was also a badass with huge claws and, you know, fast and could leap and all that kind of good stuff. So I was as a kid, I was like, ooh, I, I like the one that can, you know, go and assassinate things with great prejudice. <laughs> um, if now these days, I might very well say and have said that my favorite might be Chongyraptor. Chongyraptor. Now, whew, 
What a weird thing. First off, it's C-H-A-N-G-Y-U, raptor. You find it, Google it. It took me a while. So this was a non-bird flying dinosaur, but it looks a fuck ton like a bird. It's a bird with wings on its hind legs. It has four wings, four wings, and a tail that was like a foot long, big claws and teeth. What the hell, man? Which is not something you hear a lot about. No. Now, Michael was on the team that first analyzed and published the paper naming this a new species. So, you know. So that one has a special place in my heart for that reason. How do you feel about the um, the feathered tail that was found recently in amber? Very cool. Um, I, I actually had a little heads up that that was coming. Um, you did? Is there like a text thread that all the paleontologists of the world are on? <laughs> no, 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 no. By the way, I have found out by hanging around scientists that they do have text chains and they do talk about nerdy news. I was added to one with some scientists and field scientists called Scorpions on Our Faces, and I love it. Now, a little background on this. Last year, a paleontologist was trolling some amber markets in Myanmar and saw this apricot-sized piece of plant resin for sale as like a jewelry piece, whatever. The seller said there was like maybe a plant stuck in it. Yeah, no. It was actually a whole baby dinosaur tail, feathered. Like the best episode of Antiques Roadshow ever. They named it Eva. Eva is 99 million years old and probably got her tail stuck in tree sap and died there, which is currently making me want to cry. So RIP, little feathered buddy. And thank you for not ending up as a random chunky pendant. That's that's a that's a really neat find. It is the beginning of what'll probably what you you'll you'll be seeing more more things like that. Okay. In the future. Are we gonna be cloning anything? No, you're not gonna be cloning anything from this because while it while it more or less looks exactly like it just was preserved yesterday because the soft tissue is is there. Wow. Um that doesn't mean that the molecular structure is is completely unaltered. And DNA has a reasonably short half-life. So you would just get gobbled a gook out. Like mm-hmm. you could probably get DNA, but not it wouldn't mean anything. Okay. Um DNA doesn't have to break down much and it would be very broken down in the stuff. You might not even get any, but you might be able to get a small amount, but it wouldn't matter. D- DNA becomes incomprehensible very quickly because it only has a four-letter alphabet. Mm-hmm. So if you only have four letters in your alphabet, your words, based, if you will, have to be very lengthy. Right. So if you break them even a few times, it means nothing. If you saw the movie Gattaca, which was from one million years ago, aka 1997, it's about genetic engineering. And I always thought it was so clever that Gattaca was spelled using only the letters of DNA sequencing. So G-T-C-A. Isn't that cool? Anyway, back to old sap chickens. Those specimens are going to be very interesting for understanding anatomy of early feathers, for example. But uh, you're not going to not going to be cloning anything out, out of that, unfortunately. Although, how cool it would have been if like Michael Crichton had known about those I'm, sites or if those had been available when he was writing. Right. He wouldn't even have to use the mosquito thing. Right? I he know. could just he could just because that w- wouldn't actually work. But it feels very plausible when you read the book, which right. you know, which is the whole point. Science fiction. It, it's supposed to. He was. He found a really nice way of suspending disbelief. But if this stuff had been published, he could have just been like, "Oh, and they found a bunch of stuff." In yeah, amber. they found a whole a whole dinosaur in amber. They found a whole hand, and yeah. they just made one. You know, that would have been that would have been great. Although I have to say, the mosquito intermediate thing was was clever. It was yeah, really, it is clever. It was, it's a very very clever conceit. Clever girl. How do you feel about pop culture and its treatment of dinosaurs? Do you feel like it's good that it stokes people's interest, or do you feel like it's there's too much mythology and too much fiction? Well, I think it's I think it's both. Um, I mean, most of it is nowhere even in the ballpark of accurate. But on the whole, 
I think the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. I think for the most part, it's awesome. I think it's great. You know how many scientists would kill to have their field as popular yeah. as paleontology? I mean, it's, I mean, how petty would I have to be to complain? People are really interested in what I do, but sometimes <laughs> they get it wrong. You know, like that would be, that would be awful. Like, yeah. Yeah, I just, I would just be make a, me, you'd be a real jackass. I'd be a real jackass. <laughs> Although, how did you feel about Ross on Friends being so pedantic and exhausting? Did you ever feel like he got a bad rap? I think he earned it. He's obnoxious. Well, okay. <laughs> you know, and, and he's supposed to be, I mean, the character's supposed to be obnoxious, right? I mean, he's, he's supposed to be obnoxious, and mm-hmm. David Schwimmer did a great job with the character. And, you know, interestingly enough, there is a paleontologist named David Schwimmer. Are you serious? He was, in fact, serious. David Schwimmer is a paleontologist at Columbus State University, and he authored a paper called Giant coelacanth megacelacanthus dobi from the Upper Cretaceous of North America and its bearings on the phylogeny of Mesozoic coelacanths. He recently posted about working on a study of some, quote, mystery coprolites. A coprolite is a fossilized turd. From the exhaustive Google image searching I have done, Dr. David Schwimmer appears to have a salt and pepper goatee and a short, wiry ponytail. He looks like your aunt's cool boyfriend and the kind of person you want to sit around a campfire with, drinking a fresca, and talking about the best sunsets he's ever seen. Oh, God, does he love it or hate it? Uh, I don't know. Probably a little bit of both, in my guess. But God, I do- hope he's met David Schwimmer. For I hope they hug. I want them to hug. Did you have any heroes that were paleontologists growing up? Like, do you have a paleontologist just mentor or hero or someone who maybe died that you never got to meet? Uh, well, you know, I had I had a few heroes grow up, but actually I had one in particular comes to mind. This is actually a really cool story. I, one, of my, one of my heroes growing up uh, was a paleontologist who worked in Baltimore named David Weisample. And I went, he was giving a talk at a nature center near where I lived at the time. I was like, okay, I was like nine or 10 or something. And I got super excited. I'll never forget that day. It was all adults and me. I was the only kid at this thing. <laughs> and I asked more questions than everyone else combined. And he just rolled with it. And he talked to me afterwards. And he was, and he basically just, not only did I think paleontology was, was awesome, but after that day, I decided paleontologists were just awesome, must awesome people. Oh, like, that's just, so great. You know, this, this heartwarming story. So anyway, the... Uh, so uh, that gave me th- this awesome additional passion f- for the field. But what makes it, the story really cool is, fast forward a little over a decade later, he became my PhD supervisor. Seriously? Did he remember you at all? He didn't until I jogged his memory once. He's like, yeah, Murray, there's like, this kid. <laughs> and he's like, wait, I'm like, that was me. And Oh, that's adorable. Which is really, which is pretty cool. That's like the end. That's like the ending scene of some movie that like works out. Everything worked out okay. Everything worked out yeah. okay. Yeah, I basically feel like I get paid to do my hobby, mm-hmm. which is awesome. What's your least favorite thing about the job? And then we'll follow that with your favorite thing. So, like, least favorite quick thing about the job. Least, fa- oh, least favorite thing about the job is the same least favorite thing that a lot of people would probably say about their job, which is even though there's less bureaucracy and less paperwork than in a lot of jobs, there's still enough of it to be annoying. Yeah. What about flies on the digs? We don't have a lot of problems with them in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. But the other place that I do field work these days is in Dinosaur Provincial Park in Alberta, Canada, which is an amazing place. It's incredible. But when we go there, typically in August, the mosquitoes are just terrible. It's terrifying. The, you could from a dis, you could see the swarms from a distance because it looks like smoke hanging <gasps> over the grass. Oh. Man, it, I love bugs, but not not in mass like that. Yeah, go go to give blood. Go to Alberta. Uh, <laughs> One it, day they're gonna 
They're going to find one of those mosquitoes in amber. They're going to clone you. You're going to be like, ta-da, we made another. Well, what's your favorite thing about the job? Oh, that one's hard because just because the job actually is super fun. I love field work. I love opening drawers in new museums and the collections when I go places to, you know, travel to do research. I really do enjoy teaching. Now, of course, what I'm teaching isn't really paleontology, but I love anatomy in general. I love teaching anatomy. <laughs> and a, a uh, friend's dad at a years ago at a, a social gathering, uh, her dad came up to me and he decided he'd give me a little bit of a hard time. And he goes, so you're, you're an academic, right? I'm like, yeah. Hmm. What do you actually make? What do you... Like salary wise? No, no. He meant like isn't like what do you produce? What do you make? Like, like what do you make? And That's, I think that seems a little rude. Oh, well, he was he was doing he was being he was being rude. <laughs> I think on purpose. And I took a quick second and said, "I make doctors." Face. <laughs> Just, what did he do? Did he, he start crying? No, he turned around, popped up in a beer, and handed it to me. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it was like checkmate. It was just pretty good. So, but I, you know, I, but I do love that component. I love, I love training, you know, future physicians. There's just so much talent and brain power just wandering around at all times. Right. You can sit down in the Starbucks at USC and you just start talking to people and you'll like learn five new things before noon. That's a lot of quality noggins in one yeah. area. I have some rapid fire questions for you from Let's listeners. I'm, some of them might be. Ridiculous. Some of them might be too difficult to answer. I'm not sure. But um, okay, I'm I'm just going to start. So before we get to questions from not even listeners yet, because I recorded this before we even had listeners or a Patreon. Uh, for each episode, I donate to a charity of the ologist choosing. And this week, it is going to NHM.org. That's the Natural History Museum in LA, which is responsible for so much goodness, including an amazing dinosaur program. They have obviously top-notch paleontologists there. So NHM.org gets the donation this week. That donation is made possible by sponsors of the show who I genuinely love. And so here are a few words about them. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be exciting or unexpected. Unexpected is for podcasts about bizarre scientific revelations, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Bank. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter... 
the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Okay, let's dig in to questions. <laughs> David wants to know, any new thoughts on what color dinosaurs were? Any new thoughts on what color dinosaurs were? It depends on how new. Um, you're looking at, but within the last handful of years, yes, there was a significant breakthrough in, it's still a little bit controversial, but seems to be accurate, in looking at the impressions of feathers in particular, because feathers store their pigments, some of their pigments, in these little, kind of little capsules, basically, Mm -hmm. that uh, do preserve in some of these fossils, some of these really well-preserved fossils. You need a microscope to see them, but you, they are there. They're called melanosomes, and they store melanin, mm-hmm. uh, or melanins, I should say, which is a family of different pigments. And, of course, the original pigment isn't in them anymore, but the shape and size of the melanosome tells you what kind of melanin it had in ah. it. So they can use the microscopy, uh, advanced microscopy and imaging techniques, to on, on those feathers to determine where certain melanins were located. Ooh, what is microscopy? It's just looking at things with a microscope. Okay. That means they can get some of the blacks, grays, dark browns, and reddish browns, but they can't get other colors. Mm -hmm. So we have some idea that some of these things at least had bold patterns, but we don't know how bold the colors were. Interesting. Okay. Tony wants to know, if dinosaurs are the ancestors of modern birds, does that mean that dinosaurs tasted like chicken? Uh, They probably did. Uh, tastes like chicken. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, the way of putting it is birds are just weird dinosaurs. Yeah. And uh, and they probably did. I mean, keep in mind, the uh, the closest living relatives of birds are crocodilians. And if you've ever had alligator, it tastes a little bit like chicken too. So there you go. So there's you know, what we call a phylogenetic bracket in uh, of, of tastiness there in uh, <laughs> technical about it. And yeah, so I imagine it would taste pretty much pretty much like chicken. Your typical dinosaur would probably be mostly more dark meat than white meat. Because um, they have more hemoglobin for for moving? Uh, sort of. It's very close. What turns the, the dark meat dark is something called myoglobin, which okay. is used for storing oxygen in muscle. My bad. And it's only you... You're on the right track. It's all good. And that's used particularly in what we call aerobic muscle. So muscle that uses a lot of oxygen. It's high endurance muscle. So it's this oxygen-storing protein, myoglobin, that makes dark meat dark, which is why legs, which move around more, are dark meat. And chicken breast, which just sits there not flapping much, is white. So good luck ever looking at a roasted dinosaur the same. Adam has a question. Uh, how do you know when to switch brushes when you're digging out a fossil? How do you know when to switch brushes when the one you currently have is unusable? Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, as, as we've already discussed, paleontologists are cheap. Uh, mm-hmm. and we will use them until they're basically worn to hell. And then you just, do you have to get the finer and finer brushes when you're getting tiny grains of sand off? Uh, you don't usually have to reduce the brush size much, maybe a little bit. It's more things like chisel, anything sharp, chisel sizes, things like that. As you could, if you're doing some more detailed work, you have to go to a smaller tool. Um, brushes, uh, any kind of broad, soft paintbrush will kind of do, um, uh, certain bristle types are better than others, but you know it's you know it's not it's not like it's not like painting where you're going out to detail work. You just right. you're not taking off each individual grain of sand. You just you have some loose stuff and then you brush it out of the way, and then you have some more loose stuff and you brush it out of the way. The key thing is to not damage the fossil. I I always picture you guys going down to like a watercolor, two hairs on the brush, like delicately 
It's good to know that you guys no. are just like, no, just get the dust off. I've used dental tools to etch stuff around a fossil before. That seems fun. Um, it is for a while, and then it starts to become tedious, but it's mostly fun. Yeah, I obviously love it. But yeah, we don't go to tiny brushes. Uh, TJ wants to know how many of the fossils on display at museums are actually replicas or casts. Right, right. So it depends on what museum you're at, and it, all, it depends in a large part on what age the museum is, or the exhibit is in particular, when it was built. If it's a really old exhibit, say, so you go, say it hasn't been changed since the 1920s, it's likely mostly original material. Oh. Uh, because during that time, they didn't do as much casting. They didn't mind drilling through some of these things to put them on exhibit. And then as you got into the mid to late 20th century, that fell out of favor because they didn't want to put holes in the research specimen. But now, if it's a really recent exhibit, ironically enough, you're going to see more original stuff on display again because we have better armatures now, what we call cradle armatures. Armatures are the metal cradles that hold the bones in place externally. Not lets you remove pieces for research and put them back, do whatever. More importantly, you don't have to drill the shit out of fossils to wire them together, which is very old school. Now, what percentage of each of those specimens original is a whole nother ball game. You very rarely find a complete skeleton. So yeah. there's a few different ways of, of ending up with a complete skeleton for exhibit. One is you create a composite from multiple originals of the same species that are all similar enough in age and size that it'll more or less work as an average individual. So what you're displaying isn't a single individual ever lived, but it's sort of an average of four or five individuals that were very similar. So it's like a frankensaur? It's like a frankensaur. Okay. Yeah. And then if the thing's really incomplete, and this happens quite often, like you, you found it, you, know, you have enough to know what it is, you have enough to know it's a, a new animal, what have you, but you only have, say, 15% of the, of the skeleton, you will then fill in the rest of casts but the museums are trying their best. Yeah. So do some do some placard reading. It's interesting to see trends in paleontology. And I, I don't know. It's interesting to, to see paleontology itself evolve. Stephen, one of our audio engineers, really, really, really big dinosaur nerd, like super big. You may know Stephen Ray Morris from being America's podcast darling and from his own programs, such as the Purrcast, which is about cats, and See Jurassic Right, which is his podcast devoted solely to the movie, and it involves his own childhood Jurassic Park fanfic, which is lit as fuck. Oh, I know. I had a question. Sorry, I had a question about the, uh, the, Toro, uh, the Toro Ceratops and the Triceratops controversy. The controversy here is that sometimes dinos get mistaken for other ones. And dinosaur ghosts hate this. If uh, the Triceratops is just a juvenile uh, Taurosaurus, or if it, or if the, you know, they decided if it was actually two different species, right? So that is that is actually still a that is an ongoing debate. The majority of paleontologists that work on horned dinosaurs consider them still to be separate species, but there is one research team that has uh, published data indicating that they think that Triceratops is actually what we call a junior synonym. That is, it's really just a juvenile of another animal. I'm personally not entirely convinced, but it's a neat idea. But right now, I'd say the majority opinion amongst paleontologists is still that Triceratops is a valid name. But we'll see how it, how it plays out. Cool. Thank you. No worries. <laughs> What's the hot goss on uh, Brontosaurus? On Brontosaurus. So the, the short answer is Brontosaurus is a valid name again. Do you like petty gossip? Okay, then this is a beautiful story. So in the late 1800s, two rich dudes, Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope, had a mutual reciprocal hatred for each other. They tried to outdo each other in terms of paleontological supremacy. And they would sabotage each other's work. They would publicly discredit the other one. One of them 
Marsh put the wrong skull on an Apatosaurus and called it a Brontosaurus. In the end, we got a lot of fossils, a lot of knowledge out of their rivalry, but they both went broke in the process. Just Google Bone Wars. It's like a Bravo show, but with more monocles. But here's the update on the Brontosaurus. The original material that was named Brontosaurus was then later found to have been comprised of multiple animals of different species. Whoops. And so it was decided that Brontosaurus was not a valid name because, well, it's all known stuff. You can't combine them and say that it's a new animal. Right. Researchers recently went through that material again with better knowledge, you know, more data than we now have because over time you get better and better knowledge of what's out there. They cross-compared a bunch of stuff and what they found was that, yes, a lot of that material was already known species, but some of it didn't match anything and therefore was, in fact, new. Dope. And And that means the original name holds. That's some... Good breaking news on the brontosaurus front. Yes. I feel like between Pluto and brontosaurus, a lot of people got really confused about who was what, what was happening. Just over 10 years ago, just to catch you up, Pluto was demoted to a dwarf planet because it doesn't have enough game compared to the objects around it. That is a very casual explanation. Like Pluto somewhere just butt hurt. Yeah, right. Just crying into a wine cooler, being like, "Who? what am I? <laughs> what am I? Right. Well, okay, last question. This is actually from Leela Higgins, who is uh, an entomologist at the Natural History Museum. She wants to know, how does studying ancient fossils help the world today? Ah, that is a good question. So I, and, and I can give, there's a couple of different answers to that one. One answer would be that, that knowledge for its own sake is kind of helping the world. On a more practical side, if, if the question is really, you know, what is it, what sort of practical applications does it have? Uh, I'll be honest to say that some of it doesn't have any, but some of it does. If you want to know, for example, what kind of shit goes down when global, when global atmospheric energy, i.e. surface, temp- average surface temperature changes very rapidly, you need to go into the fossil record. This shit has happened before. Right. Right. It's not, it's not like the Earth has never seen rapid warming or rapid cooling or things before. It did. It's, that's one of the reasons why biologists, for example, get scared when you look at the, the, te- the growing temperature spike. Mm-hmm. It's because, oh, yeah, yeah, we've seen this in our records right about the time a whole bunch of shit died. Yeah. Right. And, and it's not, of course, because stuff gets, gets too warm. It's because of the rate Right. And and if you want to know how fast things have to change to be disruptive, mm-hmm. you have to look at the fossil record. For more info on this, look up huge ass meteor that slammed into an area of present day Mexico over 65 million years ago and changed the climate, leading to mass extinction of 75 percent of the animals and plants on Earth, a.k.a. the KT event. K dash T. And then lastly, in my particular case, as a biomechanist, I do work with engineers on robotics applications. Aha. Uh-huh. For the most part, if you're interested in an animal model for, say, you want to make a a running robot or something, you want to look at, get inspiration from biological systems, living things are the first place you would normally go because you can get a lot more data from them, obviously. However, 99.9% of all things that have ever lived are extinct. How weird is that? 99.9% of all things that have ever lived are extinct. Just do you. Cut bangs. Text your crush. We're all going to die. So if you limit yourself to just looking at those things, you're only getting a small fraction of the possible solutions to moving around or eating or whatever the things that you want to that you want to model. So looking at other ways it's been done is very informative. Well, I mean, it's I think that's kind of the basis of why people are curious about science is that the past can hopefully or possibly inform the future. So you always have like a vested interest in knowledge because it could 
it kind of plots your course going forward, it seems. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, that was a much much more succinct way of putting what I rambled on about. Well done. <laughs> the idea of us having a unmanned aviation that's in the shape of a pterosaur, just like a robotic pterosaur, can you work on that? <laughs> I, I <laughs> that could probably work on that. I don't, I don't know how useful that would be, but we could probably work on it. That would be pretty funny, a rideable robot pterosaur that you can use to get to work. Can that Beat happen? LA traffic. Yeah, is that okay? I will, we'll see what I can do. Put yeah. it on your to-do list. To very gingerly stalk Dr. Michael Habib, find him on the Twitters at AeroEvo, A-E-R-O-E-V-O, because aerial evolution is his bag. And to see photos of his fieldwork in the museum, but probably not cadavers, follow him on Instagram. He's at Habibinator, just as it sounds. Uh, this podcast is on Twitter at OlogiesPod and on Instagram at Ologies. And I'm on both of those as Allie Ward. And if you like this podcast and you like not having to listen to a bunch of ads, consider supporting it for about the price of a coffee per month on Patreon. I'm putting this out myself because I love doing it. Hopefully you like it. So join the community on Patreon. Um, thank you to everyone who's already supporting on Patreon. I, I want to hug all of you. Um, and thank you to anyone who's bought merch at ologiesmerch.com. And to my friend Katie for her amazing animation she's making, which you'll see soon. And for the feedback she gave me in helping shape the show. Dude, you roll. And to my folks who dug up that old tape. who act, I guess that makes it a, kind of a fossil. It was obtained by digging. And who listened to this, even though the language and subject matter can be uh, not safe for parents. But above all else, remember, ask smart people dumb questions before a future urologist is dissecting you or a meteor crashes into the planet and kills us all. Next week, gemology. So then we like get outside and then it's like the deepest, biggest boom you've ever felt. And it was just like, boom. And I was like, oh my God, that's so scary. Look at this, you guys. This is before I put secrets at the end of episodes. So I got to add one now. Okay, so this is a modern day one. This is now late August of 2019, two years later. And I will say that my secret for this episode is number one. Okay, I'll tell you this one. I'm recording this entirely in my underwear. And I'm getting ready to run out the door to go to the airport. I'm going to go up to my folks to celebrate their anniversary. And my suitcase is packed but open. I'm recording this as fast as I can. And I'm going to send it off to Stephen Ray Morris to kind of rejudge this episode. Also, he has a secret about perhaps some dino panels he might be involved with in the future. He's not allowed to announce yet. So I'm putting in a secret at the very end. And I didn't really announce anything. I just teased it. There you go. And the other secret I'm going to tell you is that this flag episode ended up so much harder than I thought it was going to be. So thank you for enjoying this encore episode while I got through the research on that and delivered it in a way that did it justice and had a little bit of a breather this weekend to hang out with my family. So, so there you go. There are your secrets. All right. We'll be back on Labor Day night, Monday of next week with a brand new flag episode. I think you're going to like it. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, say goodbye, everybody. Bye! Homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, Do you remember the first time you saw a dinosaur? First time you see them, it's like 
a miracle.